Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. So who really wants to review the year 2020? Well, even in the midst of a roller coaster of a year, we have been so grateful to have some incredible conversations with some equally incredible guests on the podcast this past year. So in this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, we will revisit some of those meaningful moments in those conversations and the gifts of wisdom and joy that our guests had to offer. In many ways, our January podcasts gave us prophetic words as we entered into 2020, helping us to think through what it means to heal from trauma, to care well for our mental health, and to find hope in Jesus. First, we began with author and counselor Sheila Wise Rowe, offering knowledge regarding mental health through the interview about her book, Healing Racial Trauma. Here are a couple of clips of our interview with Sheila discussing the intersectionality of race and gender, as well as the relationship between imposter syndrome and shame. I think, you know, just fundamentally the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says that you did something wrong. Shame says who you are is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I think for women in in academia, and I'm going to speak to women of color, but I think women in general, you know, if we come into a predominantly male environment or where the, you know, it's predominantly men in authority, Mm -hmm. we can feel like I don't have actually what it takes to actually be in this space. And there's a level of shame that says, you know, there's something inherently wrong with you. We talked about intersectionality before, but for women of color, it's, you know, because of racism, it's like, like, really, really who you are is wrong. And so you come into this environment where you're supposed to present as qualified and you have something important to say and to share. And yet you feel like because of shame that you're an imposter, that eventually they're going to discover that you really don't belong here. So that's mm-hmm. the narrative that is the tape that's playing in our heads that we, we don't belong here. We'll get discovered. We'll get kicked out you know, in some way we will be shamed publicly. And that's really difficult. But what makes it even more difficult is that, and I write this this line in the book where I said, you know, it's even harder when you're dealing with imposter syndrome, when you're in an environment that says that you actually are an imposter. You know, I've worked with women who, you know, are in the academy and they have to deal with just the, whether it's subliminal or really outright messages that, you know, somehow you got in here because of affirmative action or the topic that you're choosing to look at, which is vitally important to you and your community is not valuable to the greater society. So therefore it's not valuable. And so that's a difficult, um, that's a difficult place to be in, to be in that kind of environment. So they're really, you really, really, really have to have support in order to survive in that kind of an environment. And the places where there is shame there really needs to be a real, real looking at that. If there is shame that, you know, one is carrying because of one's race or ethnicity and, and even experiences, talking to a counselor, working through that with a counselor is great. Sharing it with a group of supportive friends is really great. It's important. It's important to have those circles to help you through that because there, there are many uh, women who just give up and just, they're just like, mm-hmm. well, it must have been true because they can't deal with just the ongoing assault on their dignity. As 
people of color, we're not a monolith. If you look at the different groups and there are definitely levels of trauma that we experience. But I feel like I steer away from that, although I do talk about it. I feel like, you know, if racism is kind of baked into the cake. It really doesn't matter in a way in that. And I don't want to say that it's irrelevant because it is relevant, but I can look at someone else of color and say, well, you know, okay, that Asian person is not going to experience what I experience as an African-American, you know, particularly if I was an African-American male and the engagements with the police. And it's likely that mm. that's not going to happen as frequently as it would happen for a male. However, because racism is baked in the cake, eventually the slice that the Asian man or woman takes, the man takes, it's gonna it's gonna hit them on some level, and that and that's kind of is shown in in my book in the stories that I'm sharing. Yeah, I I purposely want to uh, move away from this way in which we as people of color have kind of been pitted against each other. And in terms of like, well, who, who's experienced the worst and am I, I'm worse off. And, and there are ways in which it's been strategic and that we kind of are jockeying or even climbing over each other when the reality is racism has affected every one of us. Mm-hmm. And yes, to varying degrees, but it has affected every one of us. And we need to look at that and the commonalities of that. If there's any, any hope in terms of our experiencing personal healing, but interpersonal healing, and then impacting society as a whole. Similarly, counselor and author Andy Kolber shared with us how to try softer and shift towards self-compassion, connectedness, and joy. I think when people hear things like soft or gentle, we equate it with weakness. Mm. And one of the things I love, and for me, there's a lot of intersection with faith with this idea because Jesus was always telling us paradoxes, like the way up is down and, you know, like the way to be first is to be last. And so there's like all Mm -hmm. these paradoxes. And I really believe that this is what Trisofter is like and, and really what gentleness is like, that there is a strength in what seems like weakness. And in a sense that resilience is rooted in our ability to actually be flexible, to move with situations. So I guess all that to say, it, one of the things that makes that very unique is that I also grew up, I, you know, I consider myself a survivor of complex trauma. And so I think sometimes in faith communities, we sort of create this picture that once we know Jesus, everything's going to be fine, like perfect, mm-hmm. it's over. And, you know, I think my life is just such a stark difference to that. Like, I'm so grateful to have experienced Jesus at a really young age. And even still, I experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of relational and chronic little T trauma in my family. And my faith has been a tremendous resource to me and really important. But at the same time, I've had to really wrestle with a lot of really big questions. And some of them I don't even completely have the answers to in the sense of, okay, well, if Jesus, you know, was present and with me in those times, you know, really having to wrestle with where is God when we're in pain and and even what's God's Mm -hmm. posture to us in pain. And so, so much of my work now, honestly, probably one of the things that's truest for me is believing that God is our most secure attachment, the best parent we could possibly have, that God does not celebrate our pain, that God is with us in our pain, even while sometimes I don't understand 
how we still experience it or allow why God maybe always allows it. So for me, I, I guess, you know, this is a journey I'm still on. I am a follower of Jesus, but it's taken a lot of different twists and turns in the last couple of decades. And to conclude our conversation, Andy offered a benediction to bless us into the new year. May you come to experience deep in your bones the truth of your belovedness. May you know that you are loved in the midst of the heart, even while you are maybe still struggling, even while you are in process. May you know that the one who created you delights just to be near you. May you have every resource needed to move towards wholeness. May you know you are loved. Then in February, I had the opportunity to sit down and chat with writer Grace P. Cho. She shared with us her experiences of understanding her cultural identity and learning to lament and be present with her own suffering, as well as the suffering of others. She also shared how all of this has helped her to grow in experiencing the vast love of God. All of a sudden, I felt hungry for, wait, what's the legacy I carry just because I'm Korean? Even though I didn't grow up in Korea, what is the legacy I have because this is my history and the history of my people? And there's this Korean word called Han, and it's the feeling of like a righteous anger for the injustices of oppression. I used to not understand that concept. And I was trying to separate, right? I didn't want to say that that was my legacy and to say, I don't understand it. I'm American. That was what I wanted to embrace most of all. But going to Korea and recognizing, ah, this is is why we beat our chests and cry out for justice Mm -hmm. and why Korean people are, I, I used to think like, oh, that's just so dramatic, like them protesting. They do a lot of protests in Korea, I feel. I, I felt like I saw a lot of footage of that on the news. But now, knowing more of the history, I'm like, of course, of course we need to protest. Of course we have that Han yeah, that needs yeah. to be released through protest, through writing, through art, whatever it may be. And recognizing I carry that whether I want to or mm. not. And that it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And something that I'm relating to God, that God is a God of justice. Mm-hmm. And so he feels our Han. He holds that as well. The tension of there's injustices in the world and we're fighting for justice to happen. And that one day it will come about completely. But in this current time, we will live in tension. And I think that's what it means to be of two cultures and multiple cultures because I lived overseas and living in that tension and holding that tension. Now I'm starting to love love being in that place and wanting my kids to understand what it means to be Korean and the good things of it and the hard things of it in a way that was not taught to me because our immigrant parents really wanted us to assimilate. And that was what I thought was the right thing to do was to assimilate. And now again, deconstructing that and really coming to a more integrated place of this is who God made me to be in this current context for this time in history and How can I elevate the goodness of that instead of being ashamed? And would you say that it shaped you understanding more of who you are as a Korean American woman and that integration within yourself shaped how you view God and who you view him to be? Yeah, I I think it changed the way not only how I saw myself, God, but also the rest of the world 
that the whole Western savers mentality mm-hmm. um, that became de- deconstructed to see like, wait, we're all equal, right? Not I'm better than you because I grew up in this place or I've had these privileges, but my goodness, we are all of equal worth and therefore we should all be learning from each other equally and not to elevate one person or the other. And to know that God can encompass all that and hold all of that, that he did this on purpose. All the deconstruction that has happened in my life so far has blown God out of that box I had put him in or the boxes Mm -hmm. that I was taught to put him in. And to see he is so vast and wide and mysterious beyond what I could have imagined him to be. And that has made me more gracious and more compassionate toward myself Mm -hmm. and to others to see a God who can hold all of that. In the spring, many of our children were sent home from school indefinitely and joined us as we worked from home. My then seven-year-old daughter was delighted to be part of our Words of Hope podcasts, a series of brief episodes in which our women and the Academy and Professions team members offered words that were bringing us hope during those early unsettling days. Here's my daughter reading my Words of Hope from Luke chapter 24. Now on that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is ne- now nearly over. So he went to stay in with them. When he was at the table with them, he took their bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. He said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? While he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? As the pandemic continued, we had the gift of talking with Jamie Ong, Environmental Protection Project Manager at the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. We discussed nature, restoration, community, and her own experience of enduring COVID-19. Jamie's joy and faith brought so much encouragement to me, and I hope it will to you as well. Yeah, it's hard. I think you have to look for it. (laughs) You really Mm -hmm. have to search for it. Hope is not going to be in front of your face in a time like this. And I think I find hope in the fact that the flowers are blooming Mm -hmm. regardless, despite everything else. (laughs) (laughs) I think I find hope in, in the drawings that my kids sketch for me. When I was sick, I find hope in my community and how they supported us during this time. I find hope in in the fact that our church has really turned to prayer and seeking God in this time of just hopelessness around us. I think ultimately it's all of those things that I described, they, they come from God. They come from this ultimate hope that we have, right, of restoration and redemption of mm-hmm. all things being made new. And, you know, we're not we're not there yet. Frankly, we have to be really we just have to be real about that fact. We're absolutely not there yet. Yeah, but I do 
try to remind myself and I do try to look ahead to this ultimate restoration where every every tear will be wiped away you know that mm-hmm. that sense of that image of of comfort and peace and and growth still continues to be really moving to me and then I'll move on to Anne Shirley by L.M. Montgomery in the first book Anne of Green Gables this is right after her adoptive parents pick her up even though they weren't expecting her. <laughs> and this is on the eve of her being sent back to the orphanage. And if you don't know the story, it kind of unfolds from there. But on that first night, her adoptive mother asks her to, wants her to pray. And, you know, Anne's never prayed before. So one of the things that she says is, if I really wanted to pray, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd go out into a great big field all alone or into the deep, deep woods. And I'd look up into the sky, up, up, up into that lovely blue sky that looks as if there was no end to its blueness. And then I just feel the prayer. And I just love that. I think a lot of times we can't, we don't have the words. We don't even have the time or the presence of mind to sit down and articulate a prayer. But God still hears our feeling prayers. In the summer, Reverend Twanda Prelo reminded us to breathe and take time to seek rest and joy for ourselves so that we can prevent burnout as we care for others in our lives. Okay, self-care means everything to me, not just on the outside, but on the inside, and not just on the inside, but on the outside. And what I mean by that is taking care of the whole self, mind, Mm -hmm. body, and spirit, And I like to say, when we care for ourselves, it's when we can show up for others. We can't show up for others and give um, ministry, give our family, give our work 100% when we're not showing up for ourselves. So Mm -hmm. self-care to me means showing up in your own life. That's what it means to me. It means showing up in your own life. It means putting you on your calendar. I think too often we have a calendar that we live into, especially as professionals, especially as women. And we have everything on our calendar except ourselves. So for me, self-care is putting you on that calendar. And how does that look practically? Sometimes it means going through my calendar and actually putting myself on the calendar, literally putting Two to three, me. 10 to 12, me. Six to eight, me. Blocking off time in your calendar for yourself. Next, I had the privilege of interviewing pastor and professor of reconciliation studies, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, where we discussed the complex work of pursuing racial justice and reconciliation in our world. Dr. Brenda offered wisdom and truth and hope, as well as her thoughts on forgiveness that were especially meaningful to me. And I am trying to ask myself now, repair, what needs to be repaired? And first of all, we've got to ask what's been broken. And Mm -hmm. so another book that I'd like to tell you about is Jennifer Harvey's work, Dear White Christians. I would commend it to anyone. She compares what she calls the reconciliation paradigm to the reparations paradigm and puts them side by side and shows the deficiency in what happened to reconciliation and what she thinks reparations is about. And so I think this, my grandmother's hands, helps us with this notion of trauma to understand that what Jennifer Harvey says is true. With the reparations paradigm, it says that 
different communities have to do different work. So reconciliation is not everybody coming together to the table of brother and sisterhood and making friends. It's honestly saying what got broken in white people, what needs to be repaired so that healing can happen, what's been broken in African-American people's lives and people of color, what's been broken. And Resma is right here. There's been a trauma that has been generational in nature. And so seeing George Floyd strangled to death on television, watching nine minutes of someone begging, calling for their mama as a grown man, begging, please, that something about that has generational sense of uh, fear, trauma that triggers inside that I'm not even aware is present, but it puts everything inside of me on a, a level of fear in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of a political divisiveness, and then police brutality, it causes a fear in me that does not happen in every other person, say a white person. And I'm not saying this in any kind of divisive way, honestly. I have you just know me well enough to know I don't. There Absolutely, are certain, yeah. There are certain things that when a Latino person hears about immigration and people being raided and children separated from their parents at the border, there is a trauma that that community has got to address so that they can be whole enough that they can continue the journey of reconciliation. So I agree wholeheartedly that we need the healing of the Holy Spirit in those specific places. And so when I say Black Lives Matter, and a white person says to me, don't all eyes matter. It, it hurts at a level that it's hard to describe because when I know the history of lynching, the history of injustice, the history of all of the things that have caused people to not thrive, and then someone minimizes that, I literally have gotten tired of trying to convince someone of that. You mm -hmm. see? So mm -hmm. when I am in a place with other people of color who know exactly what that means, it is a healing moment when someone says to me, of course, mm -hmm. of course. And that happens when people come together. Forgiveness is for me. Forgiveness is so that I am not carrying hatred that destroys my life. And so... This man has asked for me to demonstrate my forgiveness. He is demonstrating his repentance. And so I forgive because to not do so would be damaging to my own humanity, my soul. And that's what I saw with the same African-American church in the United States when Dylan Ruff came to their church and killed nine people in what we used to call Mother Emmanuel AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And within two or three days, they were at the courthouse saying one after the other, I forgive you. Someone's mother was killed in that church at that Bible study. And they go up and say, I forgive you. And I could not imagine why or how they could do that within days of a mass shooting in a church where everybody let him read a Bible with them and he sat there for at least an hour with them in Bible study and then killed everybody but two people and everybody's loved one who was left to grieve went to the court and said out loud, I forgive you. It's a mystery. It is more powerful than I think any of us understand. 
and it basically says to the perpetrator of harm and hate and destruction, I will not let you define my life. You have definitely had a moment that has changed who I am. But from this point forward, I will not let you define anything else about me. And that's the power, I think, of forgiveness. It takes back our story and it does not allow the person who has perpetrated the violence against us to become the new narrator of our story. And so I believe that there is an army of God's people rising up. And I'm grateful because for me to become brave, sometimes it feels like the armies against us are stacked way deeper than we are. But I believe that God would say to us that there are more with us than are against us. That there are people who sincerely want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And so my sister, I see an army rising up. And by faith, I hear chains falling, and that gives me hope to keep going forward. As the new academic year began, licensed professional counselor at a university counseling center, Aubrey Kleinfeld, offered us thoughts on how to care well and support student mental health, as well as the ways she cares for her own spiritual and mental health, and to encourage us to do the same as well. When this first began, our dean said, people are not so much resistant to change as they are resistant to loss. And I've really carried that with me as we've moved into this space, just this idea that change and loss travel together. And there is so much loss that's happened. Even just in imagining what it's like returning to campus and social distancing and returning to campus wearing masks and just returning to campus that has that familiarity, but then also is so different than it was when you left. And so I think that they will be experiencing a great deal of loss connected to change, but perhaps even connected to dealing with the illness themselves in personal Mm -hmm. ways. I also think that there will be a great deal of anxiety connected to the fact that we are all now learning how to live with a threat, a threat that we can't control. And our nervous systems are adapting to that, but it's still kind of this continuum of, you know, I feel healthy right now and I I feel okay and I can be present in this moment. Um, But then there is also kind of this cloud of dread and of threat Mm -hmm. that is still hanging over us. And so that's something that we're all dealing with as a culture, as a world, really. And it it does seem as if things shift every day. (laughs) So, you know, when you hear news like that, even though it's becoming more ordinary, you immediately think, oh no, I can't do this. My house is too small, or I can't provide the structure that my children need. And I can't be a teacher and work full time. And how are we going to do all of these things? And so they're kind of all flying around. And you, I, I think about one of those little containers that they used to have in the nineties where you would jump in and there's money flying around and oh, yeah. <laughs> you collect like a billion dollars, but really you just are grasping. And so it is kind of that activation mode and you just have to settle and recognize that it is just all about 
what is the next right thing that I can do in the next 10 minutes? And so really just making things very, very small and recognizing that this is something that you can do. And I think beginning with creating rhythms in your life of things that you know kind of what to expect. So my my morning routine is the same every day and that doesn't work for everyone, but that brings me comfort because it's something that I know what to do mm-hmm. with. And it's increased my ability to recognize that God is always with us. He's gone before Mm -hmm. us. He's beside us. And he will continue to walk with us as we walk with him through this life, as we decide what is the next right thing for us to do. Another wonderful interview as we headed into the election was one with author, teacher, and postulant Amy Peterson. Amy shared with us about her recent book, Where Goodness Still Grows, Reclaiming Virtue in an Age of Hypocrisy. Through her humor, intellect, and compassion, Amy invited us to gain a new understanding of virtue and how to reimagine virtue in our lives as well. I think I want to begin by saying that I'm actually a little wary of trying to define virtue or of giving a, a restrictive definition to what virtue is because, you know, the word virtue comes from the Latin word vir for man. And I think that etymology kind of points us to something about virtue and the way virtues have been used throughout history. Often throughout history, virtue has been defined by the most powerful voices, and Mm -hmm. they have often been men. They have often been white men. So I think that the idea of virtue has throughout history been weaponized sometimes. And so rather than offering a tight definition, I kind of like to complicate things. Nice. And (laughs) (laughs) that's always more fun, right? It is, it is. (laughs) So I guess I would say rather than seeing virtue as a weapon that keeps people behaving or in their places, I like to imagine virtue as a tool for cultivating wisdom. And I think this is embodied goodness that goes beyond virtue signaling, trying to show that you're a good person who believes the right things and does the right things. It goes beyond that to embody, to really enflesh the fruits of the spirit as they're appropriate to our particular contexts and circumstances. And we need that, I mean, as much as ever, more than ever right now, that embodied goodness that isn't just fitting into a narrow box, but that is really attending to the particularities of our standpoints, our place in the world, why we have the perspectives that we have, listening to other voices, and then letting the Holy Spirit birth, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Yeah, so so I guess I can get a little carried away. (laughs) We had so many fantastic guests this year, and these were just a few of them. Head over to thewell.introversity.org slash podcasts to hear the full episodes from these guests and all of the other episodes of 2020 and years past, including other authors, pastors, spiritual directors, and women in academia. We're so grateful for each of the women who took the time to offer their thoughts and words with us. And as we typically end each podcast asking our guests what words have been meaningful to them this year, I thought I may share some words of my own. So at the risk of being overly sentimental, here is a sort of blessing I wrote this fall as we enter the new year ahead. A blessing for new beginnings. 
In the morning, may we open our eyes to goodness. May we stay awake to charity. May we allow for the excavation of deceit, hatred, and mistrust, even when we fear what we may find. May we take down our walls brick by brick and open ourselves to the vulnerability of hope. May we grant ourselves to be seen and known in both our pain and our delight. May we replant where floods and fires have brought destruction to the landscape and cultivate new life. May we let ourselves be washed over with sacred waters of the gentlest sea. Where fear has set its place at the table, may we also invite openness and love to sit beside and break bread with one another. May we trust that something, someone greater, someone kinder, someone more steadfast, someone stronger than our frail selves, has been at work through generations and will be at work today. In the evening, may we walk toward the light of sunset and sing together songs of lament and songs of joy. May we lie down in peace and be bound together by love. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.